Well, welcome today to uh, the teaching part of our worship. It's so good to be together, whether you're joining us uh, at our Saratoga campus at, at Latham, at Half Moon. If you're online, we sure would love to see you in person at one of our locations, but we're so glad that you're joining us wherever you're joining us from. Hey, let me ask you a question today as we kick things off. What would you say is the most misunderstood verse in the Bible. Now, there's a lot of verses that could probably qualify as misunderstood, right? You know those verses that people often quote, but they don't really grasp what they mean. Well, if I were answering that, I would nominate today's verse, today's passage, as one of the top five most misunderstood, but often quoted, verses or passages in all of the Bible. So let's look at it together, and then let's spend some minutes unpacking and exploring what it really means. Here is the passage, as Jesus spoke it, and it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter seven, starting in verse one. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Boy, that is quoted by people who know nothing else about the Bible. They know that verse. Don't judge now. Don't you dare judge. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, Let me me help you here. Let me take the speck out of your eye. When all the time, there's this big old plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do... They may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. What an interesting passage. So let's ask some questions of this today. First, let's ask, what is Jesus not forbidding? Because there's a number of things that this does not forbid. Second, what is he actually prohibiting? Let's ask the question then third, why is it important? Why should we even care? And then number four, how can we actually obey this? How can we actually cultivate a spirit of humble discernment in our lives as we go about living day by day? So let's jump in. First of all, when Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged, what was Jesus not forbidding? I would suggest, first of all, he was not forbidding involvement in the judicial system. Some of you may wonder why we'd even need to say that, but someone as eminent as Leo Tolstoy, the great novelist who wrote books like Anna Karenina, War and Peace, the longest novel I've ever read personally, uh, Resurrection, and all these other great novels, uh, a really eminent intellect, but he felt that this meant that Christians could not be involved in any way 
in the judicial system, not in the courtroom, not sitting on a jury, not being an attorney, not being a judge, not participating in any way. Well, he was a great novelist, but a lousy theologian because that just doesn't jive with the rest of Scripture. Leviticus 19, verse 15, God says, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. God knew that judgments would be going on. He just wanted them to be fair. He wanted judgment to be just. In Exodus 18, you can read this on your own, Moses served as a judge of the people. Now, his father Jethro gave him some advice on how he could maximize his time, but never does God say the act of providing judgment in situations is wrong. The Apostle Paul says to Christians in Corinth, as recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6, do you not know that one day, Christians, you're going to judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So let's be clear up front. We need godly judges, godly attorneys, godly arbitrators, godly members of juries so that justice will be realized in our world, okay? Jesus is in no way forbidding courtroom involvement. Secondly, it's really important we understand this, he's not forbidding discernment between truth and error, goodness and evil. He's not saying, look, you can never make a moral judgment in your life. Just get that clear. He's not saying that. In fact, we have to make moral judgments. A little bit later in this same chapter, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. Well, I got a question for you. How are you gonna know who's a false prophet and a true prophet unless you make a moral judgment, unless you discern the fruit in the person's life? Everybody on the planet who's a thinking person makes moral judgments whether they want to admit it or not. And we should, because there are things in this world that are morally right <laughs> and things that are morally wrong. Not everything is relative. We should be morally outraged at the atrocities of Hamas when children and women are being Civilians are being targeted and even brutally executed. It's okay to say, that's wrong. That's wrong. And to not do so would be to lack moral discernment or courage or both. Folks, as we live on this planet, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong and we must discern the difference. Jesus certainly did. He called a spade a spade. He called Herod a fox. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He was making moral discernments about them. He said the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. All of these statements and many more was Jesus making moral judgments about the way people act. And we have to do that if we're a Christian because Jesus said, or the, the, rather the apostle John said, walk in the light as he is in the light. Don't walk in darkness. How are you gonna know which is which unless you're making a moral discernment? Paul said, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. How are you gonna know unless you're discerning? There are all kinds of things in this life where we have 
to make moral discernments. In fact, a very interesting verse that we looked at earlier, verse six, he said, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, something interesting could happen. They could trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. What a provocative verse that is, huh? Now, that's challenging to us, folks. That ought to get your attention, really. If you're a follower of Jesus, that ought to make you perk up. Because normally, normally we think of just sowing the seed of the gospel indiscriminately. Here's seed, just sow it everywhere you possibly can. Don't worry about how people are responding or who they are or where they're coming from. Just sow the seed. But here, he says, no, wait a minute. Some people are so hardened in their hearts Some people have so deliberately shut God out of their lives and made a conscientious decision to reject the gospel, you need to rethink your tactic. Don't keep on throwing the pearls of the gospel before that kind of person. Now, how are you gonna know who qualifies and who doesn't unless you're making a moral discernment? It's interesting, when you study the life of Jesus, he, he seemed to practice this. If you study his trial before Pontius Pilate, there seemed to be some dialogue going on, although limited. But when Pilate sent Jesus to Herod to be tried by Herod, it's interesting, Jesus completely changed his tactic before Herod. Jesus discerned that Herod was not interested in spiritual matters at all. He saw Jesus as a joke. He wanted to, him to perform a trick or a miracle or something just to amuse Herod. And so when Jesus was interrogated by Herod, Jesus didn't even answer his questions. Jesus knew that Herod would only twist and ridicule Anything he said, Jesus didn't give that which was sacred to such a person. Now, we need to follow Jesus' example, but it takes wisdom to do that. If we sense that someone is out only to ridicule and mock the gospel and make it more difficult for others, we need to keep praying for that person. We need to keep modeling the gospel before them, but it may be time to back off. We need to make a moral discernment to decide that. Third, third, Jesus is not forbidding constructive criticism. There is such a thing as constructive criticism that godly, humble people can practice. I mean, there are, Great biblical characters who certainly practiced this. Moses was very constructively critical of Pharaoh's treatment of the Israelites. Nathan was a humble prophet, and yet he confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. John the Baptist, the one that Jesus says, the greatest who's ever walked the planet, John the Baptist was very critical of Herod's adultery with his brother Philip's wife. He spoke out. And there are times when we need to speak constructive criticism, and it may help provide progress or change behavior. But we need to be careful with this because we think all of our criticism is constructive criticism, right? Because it's coming from us. 
and we think we're so good and so righteous, we would never think of doing anything but give constructive criticism. Be careful, because most criticism, honestly, is not constructive. Usually, listen, if we understand our own nature, there are other motives that are driving our criticism. That's what's behind Jesus' statements here in Matthew 7, where he said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. Notice he says, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly. He does not say, take the plank out of your eye and then completely forget about your brother. That's how most people read that. Well, yeah, I got so many faults of my own, I guess I could never offer constructive criticism or help to anyone else because until I've got my act perfect. No, 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 no. He says, your brother still has that speck in his eye and it's hurting him and it's probably hurting others. You need to then help remove the speck but make sure you're doing that with tremendous humility and gentleness. But folks, be careful, because in my experience, constructive criticism is seldom practiced. It has three ingredients. Constructive criticism always goes directly to the source. It never talks behind someone's back. That disqualifies most people's input right there because they go talking to a bunch of other people and never go to the source. Constructive criticism goes in love, and it always offers a solution. That kind of criticism is incredibly rare in our world, but it is desperately needed. So, if Jesus is not forgetting, forbidding involvement in the legal system, if he's not forbidding moral discernments, if he's not forbidding constructive criticism, what in the world is he prohibiting? What is he prohibiting? Let's put it right here on the screen. I want us to get this, Jesus is prohibiting the sin, and it is a sin, of a judgmental spirit. Now we all live on the same planet, right? I don't think any of you came from Mars this morning or Venus or Jupiter. We all live on planet Earth. Would you agree with me that people are probably hypercritical in our age? I mean, are you sensing that? I mean, it, it actually is applauded in our age. Social media has accelerated a hypercritical attitude. People delight, and I mean delight, in cutting others down. They actively search for what is wrong. In fact, it's hard for you to get much of a following on your podcast or your social media account unless you do because people love controversy. They love it. They're drawn to it. It's appealing. And so you've gotta be hypercritical if you're even gonna get a listing. You gotta start critiquing people and cutting people down and letting your opinion be known loudly. And many people, indeed Christians, often have a judgmental spirit and don't even Realize It's just become such a part of who they are. I like what the commentator John Stott said, great author, by the way. Anything by John Stott is gonna be pretty amazing. A censorious critic is a fault finder 
who is negative and destructive toward other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. Such a person puts the worst possible construction. Now, this is a key to a judgmental spirit. You seldom assume the best. You typically put the worst possible construction on the motives of others, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. Another quote I wanted you to see, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great book, studies in the Sermon on the Mount that I'm reading as we go through this. He talks about the kind of person that Jesus describes here, and he says he delights in criticism for its own sake and enjoys it. I'm afraid I must go further, Lloyd-Jones says, and say that he's a man who approaches anything which he is asked to criticize, expecting to find faults, indeed, almost hoping to find them. You know anyone like that? The husband overlooks all of his wife's amazing qualities, but just zeroes in on that one annoying habit. The wife who kind of forgets the fact that her husband is faithful and hardworking and consistent, but just critiques him relentlessly for his bad grammar. Where did you go to school anyway, man? Or how about that parent who overlooks all the qualities in their child, but just for some reason critiques them mercilessly because they're not a better athlete? Or while we're going deep, while we're going deep, how about the church member? Huh? who comes to church with a sort of Siskel and Ebert attitude, you know, critiquing everything. It's either thumbs up or thumbs down. Sermon's too long. Music's too loud. Didn't like the coffee I got served today. Oh, I couldn't find a parking place nearby. All the good spots were taken. People weren't friendly to me. Can you believe that? They didn't even say hello or smile or shake my hand. And it's just critique, critique, critique. You know what? When you come to church that way, it's hard for you to enter into meaningful worship because you're too busy critiquing everything around you. Charles Darwin had a critical spirit. He went to a restaurant one time and they seated him in a place where there was a draft and he didn't like that. He kind of had a phobia about that. And then he complained about the service. It was slow and his water was warm and the salad didn't have the right kind of dressing and the meat was overcooked and he grumbled and complained and finally the manager came over and apologized to his wife. He said, I can tell your hu husband wasn't happy. She said, oh no, he was delighted. He found something wrong with everything. <laughs> now you might expect that out of someone who believed that we're sort of a cosmic accident with no purpose, no destiny. But folks, that's a shame. When you find that attitude in the people of God, because we're to be distinctive. But now let's turn another corner here and ask another question. Why is this a big deal? Because I think most of us wanna just dismiss this as, ah, it's not, come on, pastor, deal with things that are more critical than this. This is not that important. Why did Jesus warn us about a judgmental spirit? Well, I wanna give you some reasons I think that are important. One is that it just hurts the people that we criticize. That's a starting point. It just, it, 
it hurts people. I wish the Bible, you know what I wish? I wish the Bible gave us more insight into Jesus' feelings because as fully God and fully human as he walked this earth, he had feelings, he had feelings. And so when he was constantly critiqued, I wish it told us more about how he felt about that. He was critiqued relentlessly. He was critiqued about his disciples. They didn't fast as they should. He was critiqued about his miracles because he didn't do them on the right day. I mean, just everywhere he turned, there was critique, critique, critique. And it must have hurt the Lord. And if you've been critiqued, if you've been judged unfairly or criticized, you know the kind of wound that creates. You know how it can hurt. Hey, can I... I just throw this in for free today, but most pastors would never admit it. Most church staff or leaders would never admit, most small group leaders would never tell you this because they think it would be griping and they're more honorable than that, okay? But I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a little insight into most pastors and church leaders. They are constantly battling bitterness. This is the truth now. I don't know if this will shock you or not over the relentless criticism that they receive. Just throw that out there for free. I just want you to be aware of that. Now, uh, I'd like to think that I'm a little more buoyant than average. God gives me grace and all that stuff, but criticism, criticism can hurt. I had several pastors, got a lot of friends and colleagues in ministry that I interact with regularly. I had several pastors say to me, during the pandemic and shortly afterward, Rex, I'm that close to just chucking it all and quitting. The church has become an unsafe place. Well, what do you mean by that? I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. And they just couldn't, any move they made during that time and afterward, just it wasn't right, it was wrong. Criticism hurts people, folks. Be aware of that. Be aware of that before you go on critiquing someone. Now, we're talking here, hope we made clear earlier, we should speak out when someone is, something is an obvious moral wrong. We're not talking about, you can't critique a murderer. Yes, you can, it's wrong, it's horrific. You can't critique a brother or sister in Christ who's committing adultery. Yes, you can. You'd better call that morally wrong. I hope you get the point, right? But when we talk about not critiquing, we're talking about on issues of style, manners, things that are not clearly morally right or morally wrong. Paul speaks to this, by the way, in the Bible. In Romans 14, the issue there was meat offered to idols. And Paul's attitude was, look, you're no better if you do eat, you're no worse if you don't eat, you're no better if you do. It's kind of a non-moral issue. But he said, look, don't be so quick to judge your brothers and sisters. He says in Romans 14, four, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord's able to make him stand. In other words, who am I to judge a fellow Christian over an issue of conviction, an issue of preference, an issue of styles or manners that aren't really moral issues? He's gonna stand before God one day. God's gonna get him. God's gonna judge him, who am I to do that? He says in verse 10, 
You then, why do you judge your brother? Why do you look down on your brother? We're all gonna stand before God's judgment seat. Chill out. And then he goes on in verse 13, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Let me say it again. He's talking there about issues that are not clearly wrong. He's talking about issues of just style and, oh, I see this this way. This is a preference. This is not clearly right or wrong in Scripture. Those are the kind of things we need to be careful about. So if you're listening today and you go, you know what, Pastor? Uh, I'll admit, I I, I got a problem with this. We need to stop at some point in our lives and ask ourselves, what's driving my critical spirit? Oh, I say it's because I care about people so much. I say it's because I want the best for them. But do I really, is it, Is there something else going on? And what we'll sometimes find is that we critique other people because we wanna feel superior. It fuels our sense of importance and superiority. And if we can just find something to cut them down about, we feel better. It's like Irma Bombeck used to pray, Lord, if you can't make make me thin, make my friends look fat right? So we need to ask ourselves, what's driving that? A second reason Jesus warned about a judgmental spirit, and this is important, is because when it comes to human relationships, this is just basic wisdom here, what goes around comes around. And that's, that's one of the reasons that we need to be careful about this. You, you can call it whatever you want, the law of echoes. It's been called by some. You judge other people, you condemn others, guess what's gonna probably happen? You're you're gonna be condemned as well. If you want them to be a little more understanding and tolerant and broad-minded about your faults and all that, then then why don't you initiate that by practicing it first? Here's the way this law works. It's like the law of echoes. Whatever you deposit in the echo bank of life, you're gonna draw back in return and sometimes with interest. It's just a fact. I heard about a preacher who hurried to lunch one day and Out on the sidewalk outside the church building was a shabbily dressed man on the corner. And it was obvious that this man was financially deprived and sort of desperate, and he he felt genuine compassion for him. So he reached into his pocket, he slipped the man a $10 bill, and he whispered to him, never despair. Well, the next day, the same shabbily dressed man knocked on the door of the church office and gave the preacher a wad of money, bills amounting to $60. The preacher said, what's that for? He said, that's the money you won, pastor. Never despair, paid five to one in the fifth. (laughs) Now, it usually doesn't work that dramatically, all right? But it works. Life echoes back what we give out. Jesus said in Luke, the sixth chapter, do to others as you would have them do to you. Next week, we're gonna look at, briefly, Jesus, or excuse me, Matthew's version of that in chapter seven and verse 12. We call that the golden rule. 
we Christian people are supposed to treat those around us with kindness exactly the way we would wanna be treated in their situation. That's the requirement of God on our lives. But there's a reward that's promised. And the reward is that the way we treat others is generally the way we're gonna be treated in return. So just be aware of that. If you find people being pretty harsh, pretty unrelenting with you, it may be because they've experienced some of that same kind of spirit coming toward them. If not from you, from others. A third reason we're warned about a judgmental spirit is that in some way, God holds us accountable with the same strict standards we use with others. Now, I wanna be careful here because the commentators, they really strain to try to understand this. But when we judge others, Jesus said, you're gonna be judged with the same measure you use with others. Boy, I wish I knew more of what that means exactly. Because one thing I know about God, God is a just judge. God is never gonna violate his own character. He will righteously judge everyone according to his own character. So this is a bit of a mystery to me. But it seems that Jesus is saying here more than just a human thing. It's more than just, hey, people are gonna judge you the way you judge them. He seems to be saying, in some sense, God is gonna hold you accountable for the same standard you've been using with others. And that's a lot more serious. So in some way, I certainly don't fully understand God is gonna apply the same strict standards to me that I apply to others. And if I lay down the law, I better be ready to be judged by that same strict standard that I've been using with others. Well, finally today, I wanna ask one final question. How can we cultivate humble discernment? How can we live this? That's always what it comes down to, isn't it? We don't wanna just fill our brains with information. That's not super helpful. What we wanna do is live this out. How do we become the kind of people who definitely know right from wrong, okay, but aren't so quick, aren't so quick to rip others apart for their faults? And boy, I went through all kinds of iterations on what to say here. I usually write my outline down on paper before I put it in the computer, and man, I tore up sheet after sheet. I had like three points in a poem here for you, but I thought, no, I'm just gonna simplify this. I'm just gonna say one thing, one suggestion. Here it is, one suggestion in closing. Remind yourself regularly that you don't see the full picture on anything in this life. Please, Take note of that. If you honestly want to cultivate a humble, discerning spirit, if you want to kind of have an antidote to that hypercritical, censorious attitude that stinks before God, if you want to ditch that and get rid of it and become a more merciful, loving person, this is what I would recommend. Just try, try to encode this in your brain. Remind yourself regularly, look, I don't see the full picture here about anything. Paul put it like this. He said, now we see through a glass dimly. But one day, one day we're gonna see clearly, but right now, no, we don't see the full picture. We don't have full knowledge about anything. 
situations are usually far more complex than we realize. I've had the privilege through the years of speaking many times at Camp of the Woods. It's always a a, a great experience. God does some awesome things. We're there. I look forward to speaking there again next July in 2024. Just had a blast speaking in chapel and in seminars there. But several years ago, in one of the chapel times, I was really bugged because there was a man in chapel sitting on the front row who kept falling asleep during my preaching. That's a really humbling thing, folks. I mean, by the way, we just had three people wake up right here in the sanctuary just now. They were drooling, had their mouths open. It's really a humbling thing. Now, I know that even the great apostle Paul, according to Acts 20, a young man named Eutychus fell asleep while Paul kept preaching. So, All of us preachers ought to get a tough skin and not be upset by it. If Paul had people go asleep, we should be okay with it, all right? But it bugged me. The guy came every day. I didn't mention it to anyone because it's not really a huge big deal in the big scheme of things, but it just annoyed me. And I began to critique the guy in my mind. And in my mind, even during my message, mind you, I was thinking things like this. Dude, if you don't want to be here, why do you come? Chapel is a voluntary activity, man. Nobody's making you come to chapel. And if you don't care enough to stay awake, then for God's sake, just don't come or at least don't sit on the front row. And I critiqued him harshly. In my mind, last day of the week, Friday, his wife came up to me afterward. She said, oh, it's been so great to be here this week. She said, my husband is battling cancer and some of his medication makes him sleepy. And I begged him not to come, knowing he'd probably sleep through most of it, but he just insisted, insisted on being together with God's people in worship. And when I got alone later that day, I said, God, please forgive me. See, folks, I knew better. I'd even heard, I'd even heard fellow pastors tell similar stories. I knew better. I should have stopped myself. Maybe there's something going on here I don't understand. But I harshly critiqued him in my mind. I said, God, please forgive me. I didn't know the full picture. And that's why Paul says, final verse, 1 Corinthians 4, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. In other words, if you think you got it all figured out, if you think you know the bottom line, just just hang on, wait, chill out a little bit, wait till the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what's hidden in darkness. He'll expose the motives of men's hearts And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. So one of the best antidotes I know to a judgmental spirit is just to regularly remind ourselves, I don't see the full picture on anything in this life. Only God knows the full story. And that's why only God and God alone can be an all-sufficient judge. Father, we... We are so grateful that you've given us a capacity for moral discernment in this 
life. And you've called us to be discerning. But God, help us to have humble discernment. Humble discernment. Realizing we got tons of faults of our own. Realizing that we don't see the full picture on anything. So help us to not be so quick to rip others apart, but to humbly hold back and go, you know what? I'm sure there's stuff here that I don't fully understand. May we be people who please you with the judgments that we do make. May we have the moral courage to call sin what it is, because you've called us to do that. But on matters that are indifferent, matters of preference, style, manners, help us to be gracious. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.